Hey, a couple quick announcements. Uh, my book, also called 60 Songs That Explain the 90s, will be released on Tuesday, November 14th, and is available for pre-order now. If you would like a signed copy, we have partnered with Premier Collectibles to offer signed book plate copies of the book. That link will be available in the show notes, and I will also put it up on Twitter, where my handle is simply at Harvilla, H A R. V-I-L-L-A. Also, 60 Songs That Explain the 90s is doing a live podcast event in Los Angeles, California on Thursday, November 16th at 8 p.m. at the Terragram Ballroom. Tickets are available now at the venue's website. That's T-E-R-A-G-R-A-M ballroom.com. I will be joined by your best friend and mine, Yasi Salik, host of Bandsplain and 24 Question Party People, and our special guest, Chris Ryan, co-host of The Watch. Please join us at the Terragram Ballroom in L.A. on Thursday November 16th. Thanks a lot. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Let me tell you about the angriest my mother has ever gotten at a song on the radio. It is 1990, I'm 11 or 12 years old, and my mother and I are driving around town listening to the radio. We got errands to run. We got grandparents to visit. We got basketball practices to attend. I sucked at basketball. Maybe later we'll hit up Pizza Hut. I can get a free personal pan pizza thanks to the Book It program. Book It, all caps, exclamation points, where you read 35 choose your own adventure books and you get to put little stars on your giant dinner plate sized Book It pin, which in turn gets you free pizza. I kicked ass at Book It. And so then a brand new heart song comes on the radio. Ooh, we love Heart. Heart, the righteous and enduring rock band from Seattle, led by the sisters Anne and Nancy Wilson. Barracuda, Crazy on You, Alone, These Dreams. Ooh, These Dreams. Sometimes when I feel like raising a ruckus, I just argue with a straight face that 80s Heart is superior to 70s Heart. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to hear me argue that. I believe that, and even I don't want to hear myself talk about that. But now it's 1990, and Heart are boldly entering their third decade with this new song, whose title we are, for the moment, mercifully unaware of. 
The salty way Ann Wilson sings the word umbrella is your first sign that something's amiss. I am not a tremendously sheltered person at 11 or 12 years old, pop music wise. Between the ages of 8 and 11, I have already consumed roughly 3,000 hours of MTV. That is not a wild estimate. I did math to arrive at that number. Thank you. Two hours a day every day for four years is somewhere around 3,000 hours. Don't check that. Thank you. I've already watched a lot of MTV. Man, that's 3,000 hours of lasciviousness. That's a lot of Madonna videos, Prince videos, Aerosmith videos, Guns N' Roses videos, Janet Jackson videos, Paula Abdul Videos, the cold-hearted video is quite lascivious, if I recall correctly. Van Halen videos, etc. And occasionally my parents do object. Occasionally my mom walks in the room while I'm watching MTV, right as George Michael is sauntering through I Want Your Sex. And there's like eight different butts on screen in 10 seconds. And mom's like, all right, that's enough. And I get busted and she turns the TV off and I go read another Choose Your Own Adventure book until the heat dies down. But Generally, my parents are resigned. And certainly, if the song's clean enough to play on plain old pop radio, then it must be fine, right? That edict will be tested often in the early 90s. My mother will not find Belle Biv DeVoe's Do Me amusing. She will not find Naughty by Nature's OPP amusing. She will not find I Touch Myself by Divinals particularly amusing. But for now, her guard is down, and we love heart. We are a pro-heart family, and this appears to be a heart song about a nice lady picking up a nice hitchhiker, which is ill-advised, but that's rock and roll for you. Yeah, so three salient facts about this song. Fact number one, this song appears on Hart's 1990 album Brigade, which is not as good an album as whichever 80s Hart album has these dreams on it. Fact number two, this song was written by Mutt Lang, famed ACDC and Def Leppard and Shania Twain cohort Mutt Lang, whose name I mispronounced repeatedly during the Shania Twain episode of this show. I kept calling him Mutt Lange. But joke's on you. I was mispronouncing his name on purpose as punishment to protest his shameful treatment of his future ex-wife, Shania Twain. Shame on you, Mutt. That'll teach you. Fact number three. Here's the chorus of this heart song. And wow, my mom is super not amused. Oh, shit. This is a song about a lady banging a hitchhiker that is literally called All I Want to Do is Make Love to You. Zero parentheses in that song title, by the way, which is an incredible show of restraint for the title of a song with otherwise no restraint whatsoever. Mutt Lang had to be physically restrained from not making the title All I Want to Do, parentheses, is Make Love to You. Or perhaps... Even all I want to do, parentheses, is make love, close parentheses, open parentheses, to you, close parentheses. Anyway, my mother's scowl was audible 
Yikes. I am just guessing that we did not get any further into this song than the first line of the chorus. And thank goodness for that. So we found this hotel. It was a place I knew well. Unfortunately for Mutt Lang Hart, the narrator of this song, and my mother, the only available rhyme for So We Found a Hotel is It Was a Place I Knew Well. There is literally no other series of rhyming words available in the English language. Tough break. It's a super inflexible language. English. It was a place I knew well it is then. They have sex in the hotel and she leaves him there in the morning. That's the second verse. This is suboptimal morally speaking, if you're my mother, but it's the third and final verse, which mom did get around to hearing eventually that got her ultra pissed. This would be the verse when the boy and the girl happen to reconnect a few years later. Imagine his surprise when he saw his own eyes. Oh, Shit, this is a song called All I Want to Do is Make Love to You in which a lady bangs a hitchhiker, ditches him, has his baby, and doesn't tell him. Listen, at 12 years old, I am already more or less a lapsed Catholic, but I ain't allowed to be that lapsed, right? My mother almost sent me to a convent after we heard this song. That just sounded funnier, but seminary is the more appropriate gendered term for where I was almost sent. A seminary being where you go to enter the priesthood. You get me. Convent was funnier. The English language is inflexible. It is audible to me in this moment. The stormy thought bubble above my mother's head as she debates whether I will be allowed access to the mainstream pop music of the 90s. On the basis of this heart song, my mother has grown concerned that the mainstream pop music of the 90s is so scandalous, so unscrupulous, so damaging to the moral and spiritual development of her beloved firstborn son, that he must be shielded from it entirely. There's a version of the 1990s where the only music allowed at our house is the Amy Grant Christmas album. Oh, Jesus, and that's enough. You know who agreed with my mother? And also profoundly disliked this song, Ann Wilson, who sang it in 2017 and said, essentially, in songs that I don't write, I become a storyteller. And I think I'm at my best as a storyteller when I can dig what's being said. I didn't believe in the way the original lyrics were devaluing the man in the story. Just going, yeah, I can pick you up. We can have a night of love. We can never even know each other's names. You can be so miraculous. And then I can just get up and leave you a note and walk out on you. Have a baby and sort of gloat about your surprise when you see the kid. To me, that was kind of an empty, weird, sort of hateful story. End quote. You said it. 
And Ann Wilson and my mom would really get along, I think. So that's the story of how a heart song almost convinced my parents to forbid me from watching MTV or listening to the radio before the 90s even really started. But it's also a story about how, in 1990, a song called All I Want to Do is Make Love to You was arguably the gnarliest, most explicit, most morally objectionable piece of music you could possibly hear on MTV or pop radio. Let me tell you about the gnarliest, most explicit, most morally objectionable song my buddy Mike ever played for me. Your mama got some good ass pussy and since we through, I'm gonna tell your funky ass your mama fucks way better than you. This is not the most enlightened moment of my life nor the most enlightened moment of our time together. But in the interest of full disclosure and honest communication, okay, yeah, now it's 1999 or so, and I'm 21 or so, and I pick up my buddy Mike to drive him somewhere, and he gets in my car with a burned CD. He's like, dude, you need to hear this. And I go, what? And he goes, this. Great ad-libs, honestly. This is a song called, simply, Mama. Incredible restraint. From a rapper named Bootleg. Bootleg hails from Flint, Michigan. Bootleg is a rapper and producer, perhaps best known for his work with the Dayton family, a Flint hip-hop group, perhaps best known for their 1996 album, FBI, which stands for Fuck Being Indicted. That is a fantastic acronym slash album title. I don't mind telling you, I feel no ethical or spiritual dilemma whatsoever about greatly enjoying the idea of FBI standing for fuck being indicted. Whereas I am wrestling now with quite an acute ethical and spiritual dilemma, given the plain fact that when I was 21 or so, I also greatly enjoyed Bootleg's 1999 solo album, Death Before Dishonesty. And in particular, this track, which to remind you is called Mama, and which consists of Bootleg processing a breakup. Let's not belabor the premise here. Let's not get all rap genius about this. That's the chorus. That's the lady who's breaking up with him in the background there. Okay, let's not belabor this in general, but I'm trying very hard now to show a little grace to myself then at 21 years old during what in retrospect was perhaps the zenith of my immaturity and general rudderlessness. I am trying now to imagine myself a wayward young adult blasting a spectacularly uncouth rap song off a burn CD as me and my buddy drive out to, you know what? I think we might've been going to pick up our lady friends to take them to the boot the country line dancing bar. And now I'm marveling at how spectacularly inappropriate this song is for that purpose. This is worst case scenario, picking up some girls music. And I have never heard this song before. I've never heard of bootleg before, but I am astounded. I am gleeful. I am wrapped by his callousness, his tastelessness, his audacity, his willingness to say anything to get a laugh to get a rise out of you. It's infectious. You know, you get caught up in it. 
the exhilaration of wondering what he'll say next and the barbed joy of knowing he could say anything. Okay, bootleg, that's enough. Jesus. And one thing I know in this moment, of course, is that a burned CD is certainly the only possible delivery system for a song this spectacularly uncouth. They certainly don't let guys like bootleg on the radio or MTV. Let me tell you about a moment very recently when I realized that now I'm going to get what I deserve. This happened Saturday afternoon. This happened like five days ago. I am driving my sons, 12 and 10 years old, to a birthday party. And we are listening to a giant playlist of 90 songs compiled by Cream Magazine, the newly revived Cream Magazine, which just put out a cool 90s-themed issue. And they put together like a 200-song playlist in celebration. And I am listening to it straight through in full because that's how I roll. I don't spend all my time listening to music from the 90s. Just to clarify, I have other interests musically and otherwise. But in this particular instance, this is what I'm doing. Okay, and this song pops up on the playlist. A song called $10 Bill by a scabrous New York City noise rock group called Cop Shoot Cop. And somewhere deep in my subconscious, it occurs to me as this song starts grinding away in the minivan that I am de facto playing this song for my sons right now. And the band name Cop Shoot Cop is clearly visible on the screen, on the dashboard, and the minivan. And my 12-year-old riding shotgun, he goes, oh, Cop Shoot Cop, that's a weird band name. And I go, uh, yeah. And meanwhile, I'm frantically trying to determine which interpretation of the band name Cop Shoot Cop is worse for my son's moral development. The gun-based interpretation he's probably thinking of, or, you know, the drug-based interpretation he's hopefully not thinking of. And meanwhile, I'm having another frantic thought, which is, oh, shit, I don't know if there's profanity in this song or not. Got a big black gun in my pocket. I got a big black gun. And the smart, responsible, mature thing to do at this point is turn the song off, right? But I'm enjoying the song. See, I would personally prefer to keep listening to the song. And so we keep listening to the song. And now, henceforth, we are white-knuckling it through a song called $10 Bill by a band called Cop Shoot Cop. And I am feebly trying to manifest an absence of profanity in this song, lest it pollute the souls of my children. Sidebar, the lead singer of Cop Shoot Cop is a dude named Todd Ashley who went on to form the rad gypsy punk band Firewater who kick ass 
and who put out a bunch of rad records we used to play all the time on college radio. I just listened to a Firewater song from 1996 called When I Burn This Place Down for the first time in 25 years, and I had a fantastic time. When I burn this place down I love that song. I found an interview with Todd Ashley from earlier this year where he talks about raising his daughter. He says, I knew going into this parenting thing that I had a window of maybe four or five years in which I could vet the music my daughter would hear. Being a control freak, I took full advantage of those years. I wanted her developing brain to get a solid grounding in classic melody and song structure before she was exposed to bullshit musical content from off the internet. Then he describes all the cool kid-friendly mixtapes he made for her. And he says, that window is closed. You don't want to know what sort of musical torture I am subjected to now. I can't wait till she's a teenager and will start hitting me with some cool sounds. End quote. Yeah, good luck with that, Todd. Anyways, the good news is, against all odds, there's no profanity in the Cop Shoot Cop song, $10 Bill. You can knock the damned all down, but you ain't gonna get a Damn doesn't count. The song ends without incident. And the next innocuous, profanity-free song on the playlist starts. And I congratulate myself on not accidentally playing any songs with 50-pound swear words for my children. And I think, I pretty much got this parenting thing mastered. I'm really good at molding the minds of impressionable children. This isn't so hard. And then the next track on the playlist starts. I'll fucking, I'll fucking tie you to a fucking bedpost with your ass cheeks spread out and shit, right? And then I turn the stereo off and nobody says anything. And we arrive at the birthday party and I drop off the boys and I get to listen to Method Man on the drive back alone. My work here is done. But yeah, nowadays I'm where my mother used to be. I'm the one driving. I'm the one driving with a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old in the car. I'm the one wincing when each new song comes on the radio or on the playlist that I ill-advisedly turned on myself for work. This is my job. And I'm wondering if this will be the song that irretrievably corrupts my children. And what or who am I most afraid of? What or who is the worst-case scenario in terms of achieving a high enough degree of mainstream pop culture saturation that I can't protect my children from hearing it, even if I were actually trying to prevent my children from hearing it. Who is the true enemy? Who is the boogeyman? Turns out it was the same guy who was the boogeyman in 1999. No, not bootleg. This guy. Hi, my name is... My name is Rob Harvilla. This is the 106th episode of 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. And this week we are discussing My Name Is by Eminem from his 1999 album, The Slim Shady LP. I feel like Eminem would appreciate the fact that a while back my one-year-old daughter was running around the house 
And my wife yells out, what's in the baby's mouth? And my 12-year-old son yells back, D's nuts. So I don't know if there's any point in concerning myself with the potentially foul language in the songs I'm playing for my sons anymore. I do believe that ship has sailed. They have achieved full maturity, which is great for me. Actually, one last thing for me to worry about. Let's check in with the most underrated MC of all time. We was already molded in people minds smoothianis. Now we more fucked up with a mayor named Giuliani. You can try to blind me, analyze, but can't define me. My mind's divine, heavily entwined with Gandhi's. Every list of the most underrated MCs of all time, compiled by anybody and listed anywhere, is legally obligated to include this guy, Anthony Cruz, better known as AZ, born and raised in Brooklyn and perhaps best known for his long friendship and professional association with Nas. AZ appears on Nas's Not At All Underrated, because everyone reveres it, 1994 debut album, Illmatic. Specifically, AZ raps on the song, Life's a Bitch. Sorry about the bad word there, kids. So this is AZ on his own 1995 solo album called Doe or Die. This song is called Rather Unique. It is produced by the great Pete Rock, and it is a fine showcase for the distinct AZ experience, the hard-nosed charisma, the polysyllabic monotone, the deceptive serenity, the willingness to make up cool-sounding words if that's what you got to do to fit the meter. Tell them about your verbals, AZ. My verbals rip shit, brains give birth to thoughts and triplets, fuck it, I'm on some flip shit, ready to let my clips fit, dramatical, vocals release shells like automatics, do music's magical, goals in any battles to be tragical, child. Any battles with this guy will indeed be tragical. AZ has enjoyed a long and decorated and intermittently high-profile career. He was in The Firm, the supergroup with Nas and Foxy Brown and Nature. They put out one album in 97. I saw Nas in concert last night. He's touring arenas with the Wu-Tang Clan. It was great, but The Firm didn't come up and AZ wasn't there. But nonetheless, AZ's great. AZ's underrated. And as the song says... AZ is rather unique, but the thing about being rather unique is that other rappers elsewhere might get inspired. Hey yo, my pen and paper cause a chain reaction to get your brain relaxing. A zaniac and maniac in action, a brainiac in fact, son. You may need that attraction. You look insane, whack when just a fraction of my tracks runs. And here he is. The Zaniac and Maniac in Action. Hello. Hi. It's Marshall Mathers, a.k.a. Eminem. Born in 1972 in St. Joseph, Missouri, but never mind that because he eventually settles with his mom in Warren, Michigan, in the suburbs of Detroit. Young Marshall has moved around a lot as a kid, changed schools a lot, fought a lot or gotten bullied a lot. He fails ninth grade three times and then quits school entirely. His father's a non-factor, but when he's nine years old, his cool uncle Ronnie gets him the soundtrack to the 1984 breakdancing film Breakin', which is where young Marshall hears his first rap song, Reckless, featuring the DJ Chris the Glove Taylor and some verbals by the rapper Ice-T. Young Marshall is enthralled. Ice-T, one more thing to answer for. But when you talk of MCs, Ice-T is the best. And when you talk of BJs, forget the rest. Was reckless. 
Young Marshall decides that he too will be a rapper. He takes the name Eminem. Marshall Mathers, Eminem. He spells it out so he won't get sued. Okay. He joins forces with a close childhood friend named Deshaun Dupree Holton, a.k.a. Proof. Eminem and Proof spend every Saturday at open mic battles at the Hip Hop Shop, a club on West 7 Mile. Young Eminem struggles at first on the mic. His palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy. There's vomit on his sweater already, mom's spaghetti, etc. Eminem will later tell Rolling Stone, he says, as soon as I grabbed the mic, I'd get booed. Once motherfuckers heard me rhyme, though, they'd shut up. End quote. Eminem is white, if that hasn't come up yet. Eminem and Proof hook up with a few more rappers and form the crew The Dirty Dozen. Eminem's debut solo album. Released in 1996, is called Infinite. And he don't sound much like Ice-T. Now, does he? Coil your hands around this microphone, a lethal. One thought in my cerebral is deeper than a jeep full of people. No, on Infinite, the song, the only song on Infinite, the album that's officially streaming, Eminem's got a lot of deep thoughts in his cerebral, and he sounds a little bit like AZ. Donny. It's not the most gratuitous rapper imitation you'll ever hear. It's not like he's doing like a blatant Buster Rhymes impression or something, but it's clear enough the empirical, lyrical, miracle lineage to which young Eminem aspires. You might say he's using way too many napkins. There's no more napkins anywhere in the house. Wipe your hands on your pants. You ain't got the stamina you lack in the stamina. The moment where he rhymes the burial of Jesus with catch all the venereal diseases, that's where the Marshall Mathers we know and love peeks through. Eh? Is Infinite the album a good album? No. Is it a commercial or critical success? No. Does it only sell 70 copies as Eminem alleges in his 2008 autobiography, The Way I Am, which also features like 600 photos of Eminem flipping the bird? No, it probably sold more than that. But if we're talking rap albums sold primarily out of the rapper's car, young Eminem is no too short. All right. Talking about Infinite, M later tells Rolling Stone, it was right before my daughter was born. So having a future for her was all I talked about. It was way hip hopped out, like Nas and AZ, that rhyme style that was real in at the time. I've always been a smart ass comedian, and that's why it wasn't a good album. End quote. Eminem's daughter is named Haley. Haley's mother is Eminem's already longtime on-again, off-again girlfriend, Kim. And unfortunately, you'll be hearing more about Kim and Haley real soon. But in the meantime, enjoy Eminem using this rhyme style while it lasts. Or don't enjoy it. Your choice. Clinical studies show that I'm cynical. There's no one who's identical to my fresh and authentic flow. I'm sure that party people can agree. And I'm enchanting with a romantically freaking vocals of frantically. That song's called Tonight, and it reminds me of a ward tour by a tribe called Quest, but in the sense that it makes me wish I was listening to a ward tour instead. Do many of the relatively few people who listen to Infinite observe that Eminem sounds quite a bit like AZ and Nas? 
Yes, they do. Does Eminem take kindly to that? No, he doesn't. Quote, after that record, every rhyme I wrote got angrier and angrier. A lot of it was because of the feedback I got. Motherfuckers was like, you're a white boy. What the fuck are you rapping for? Why don't you go into rock and roll? All that type of shit started pissing me off. End quote. And then one day he's on the toilet. This is a true story. Or this is a story Eminem tells in his first of many Rolling Stone cover stories. He says, boom, the name hit me. And right away, I thought of all these words to rhyme with it. So I wiped my ass got up off the pot, and went and called everybody I knew. End quote. The English language. More versatile than it first appeared. That don't sound like AZ or Nas at all. In December of 1997, Eminem releases the Slim Shady EP. This song is called Low Down Dirty. Remember on the Black Album when Jay-Z goes, I dumbed down for my audience to double my dollars? And he says, if skills sold, truth be told, I'd probably be lyrically Talib Kweli and everyone got mad at him. This ain't that. This is not Eminem dumbing down to double his dollars, though it is arguably much dumber. And Eminem is for sure about to become a multimillionaire. But if you're the sort of person preoccupied with authenticity, as rappers go, as rapper personas go, and if you generally look askance when a rapper flops and then radically changes up his or her style for commercial gain, first of all, don't be that sort of person. Don't do that. We can find you something else to be preoccupied about. And second of all, I think enough time has passed where we can say that this arrested, molested myself and got convicted version of Eminem is way closer to the real Eminem than the far less scatological infinite Eminem. And the terrible genius of Slim Shady is that he's still a spherical, lyrical miracle who can hang with Talib Kweli or Jay-Z or Nas or Ice-T or anyone as a pure rapper, as a super fast rhymer of words. But Eminem also raps like he's 12 years old and still sitting on the toilet. He has the puerile, scatological, nigh unbearable, please don't say that, uncontrollable rage of the least controllable 12-year-old you've ever even heard of in your life. Skills do sell, but what Eminem is really selling is a willingness to say anything and insult anyone. I'm not explaining the Margot Kidder line. Forget it. The Slim Shady EP is a song called Just Don't Give a Fuck. It has a song called Murder, Murder. It has a song called Just the Two of Us that I don't feel like talking about yet. But most importantly, to my mind, it has a song called If I Had, which is relatively subdued and almost reflective and as close as you're ever going to get to Eminem explaining himself without also trying incredibly hard to antagonize you. Life by Marshall Mathers. What is life? Life is like a big obstacle in front of your optic with it slow you down. 
That's the intro, and it's not important, except life is like a big obstacle in front of your optical is actually tremendously important. He never stops talking like this, like an ever so slightly corny battle rapper, like an inveterate, super fast rhymer of words. The word obstacle pops out of his mouth, and the word optical pops out right after it. It's unavoidable. It's involuntary. Or so I'd like you to think. It is very important to Eminem going forward that everyone just assumes that Eminem has absolutely no impulse control. That way, we'll let him get away with anything. Right? I'm tired of backstabbing ass snakes with friendly grins. I'm tired of committing so many sins. Tired of always giving in when this bottle of Henny wins. Tired of never having any ends. This version of Eminem always brings me up short. Any album, any era, the glumness, the exhaustion, when he slows down, when he calms down, in a manner of speaking, when the cartoon ultraviolence abates for just a second, when the clouds part, but the mood somehow darkens, when he sounds human, when he sounds vulnerable. When he sounds like a poor kid in multiple senses who can't catch a break in any sense. It's tired of being white trash, broken, always poor. Tired of taking pop bottles back to the party store. Tired of not having the phone. Tired of not having a home to have one in if I did have one on. Even something about the syntax of not having a home to have one in if I did have one on appeals to me. Eminem has talked a great deal about this era, about getting fired from his dead-end job as a cook five days before Christmas and only having $40 to get his daughter a present for her first birthday, about his cool uncle Ronnie dying by suicide, which left M so devastated he didn't speak for days and couldn't bring himself to attend the funeral, about his never-ending fights with Kim and also with his mother, about how no one would take him seriously as a rapper until he became Slim Shady, the boogeyman, the Antichrist. And that's the guy I can hear so clearly on If I Had, and another early song called literally Rock Bottom. He's got one foot in the gutter and one foot out. He's got one foot out of the Superman phone booth and one foot still in. And for just these last few seconds of true vulnerability, he's still just daydreaming about what he'd do if he got everything he wanted. If I had a magic wand, I'd make the world suck my dick without a condom on while I'm on a john. I am guessing that's not what you would do, personally, if you had a magic wand. That's not what I would do either, necessarily. But that's the difference between Eminem and the rest of us. That's one difference. Another difference is that he adds the words, while I'm on the john. He didn't have to do that. But he just wanted to rhyme something with, without a condom on. Let's just say he's built different. Quick, what would you do if you had one wish? One wish. What would you do? Nope. Wrong. If I had one wish, I would ask for a big enough ass for the whole world to kiss. Built different. And then the best thing that could ever happen to a guy like this happened. He finished second. More specifically, he got evicted, had to break into his own freezing cold apartment with no electricity to sleep on the floor, woke up the next day, went to the Rap Olympics, a battle rap type situation out in LA, and he finished 
second. He lost to a rapper named Otherwise. Otherwise with a Z. Paul Rosenberg, star of many Eminem skits and Eminem's faithful attorney at law. Paul Rosenberg once told Vanity Fair that Otherwise, the rapper, Otherwise has never been heard from again. That's a great line. That's a gold medal rap Olympics line. Good job, Paul. Eminem loses. First prize was 500 bucks and a Rolex. The Rolex was probably fake, but he could have pawned it. Eminem is devastated. Paul Rosenberg tells Rolling Stone, he really looked like he was going to cry. End quote. That is a wild thing for your attorney to say in your first Rolling Stone cover story. But these are the sorts of people we're dealing with. Best thing that could have happened to Eminem. Losing. This is the Michael Jordan getting cut in high school principle, the formative mortal wound, the permanent grievance. This is how you truly become the sort of person who wastes his one wish on a big ass or the whole world can kiss it. Scratch that though. Losing was the second best thing that happened to Eminem. The best thing was when music mogul Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre hear a copy of the Slim Shady EP. Dre, talking to Rolling Stone, remembers it like this. In my entire career in the music industry, I have never found anything from a demo tape or a CD. When Jimmy played this, I said, find him now. End quote. Dre finds Eminem. They go into his studio together. In their first hour together, this happens. Hi, kids. Do you like violence? Yeah, Want to yeah, see me yeah. stick nine-inch nails to each one of my eyelids? Uh-huh. Want to copy me and do exactly like I did? Yeah, Try yeah. sit and get fucked up worse than my life is? My Name Is comes out as a single in January 1999. The Slim Shady LP comes out a month later in February and features only three songs that involve Dr. Dre, counting this one, though Dre's cosign is crucial and audible throughout. This is one of those deals where it's technically still the 90s, but it's not until the 21st century when Eminem truly becomes every Batman villain simultaneously. Also, in terms of corrupting the youth of America, if you grew up in the 90s, then most likely you were already grown up when this song hits, or as grown up as you're going to get. I am 20 years old. When My Name Is comes out. I am no longer glued to MTV. I am not radicalized by Eminem the way I might have been radicalized if he'd blown up when I was 12. And as a consequence, I think I will always approach Eminem from a strange emotional remove. A limbo of sorts. I don't see him through a child's eyes or a teenager's, but I don't see him through an adult's eyes either. We are suffering from parallel permanent arrested developments. But I understand, of course, why this song delighted kids and terrified parents. The chords here, the bright, shiny, candy-like keyboard chords right here. This is, hey kids, do you like violence incarnate? This is as insidious as pop music gets. Pissed off and ripped Pamela Lee's tits off and smacked it so hard I knocked the clothes back with like crisscross. This is the dirty version of My Name Is. In the clean version, the MTV version, he just rips Pamela Lee's lips off. It's much better. You hear it and you don't hear it. 
It all blows right by you, and yet you understand perfectly. It is legitimately beautiful as music. It is world-historically appalling as speech. Maybe you never want to hear this person's voice again. Maybe you'll never have another favorite rapper ever again. Maybe both. He'd be so much more tolerable, or at least ignorable, if his comic timing were worse. Right? Unfortunately, very few rappers of his or any other generation have better comic timing. No, you blew up when the women rush your stands. You try to touch your hands like some screaming usher fans. This guy, White Castle, asked for my autograph, so I find it. Dear Dave, thanks for the support, asshole. I laugh at Dear Dave, thanks for the support, asshole, every time. It is the proverbial laugh through gritted teeth. There is no other kind of laughter in Eminem's universe. Or anyway, all the other kinds of laughter are even worse. Am I coming or going? I can barely decide. I just drank a fit the vodka. Dare me to drive? Go ahead. It will be a year or so before we revisit that line and its implications on Stan off Eminem's second blockbuster album, 2000's The Marshall Mathers LP. But if we talk about any of the other songs on that record, we also have to talk about the song Kim. But I will never forget walking into my college record store and finding the Marshall Mathers LP in one of the CD preview kiosks, you know, with the headphones. And for reasons I will never understand, I jumped straight to this song called Kim. And Pound for Pound is probably the single most unpleasant musical experience I've ever had in my life. And if I had one wish, I'd wish to never have to think about the song Kim again. So forget it. Okay, before I lose my nerve, let's get on with it and deal with the other songs on the Slim Shady LP that we do have to discuss. Now before you walk in the door to slick a store and try to get money out the drawer, you better think of the consequence. Who are you? I'm your motherfucking conscience. I have made the executive decision not to excerpt the second verse of Guilty Conscience in which Eminem and Dr. Dre advise a 21-year-old guy on what to do with a 15-year-old girl because nobody needs that shit. But you can't pretend that verse doesn't exist either, can you? Same deal with the third verse where Eminem needles Dre about assaulting D. Barnes, even right away in 1999 and for the next, you know, couple of decades thereafter. Eminem's music is basically unavoidable, and the fundamental moral dilemma of Eminem is extra unavoidable. The ugliness only magnified by the pop superstar prettiness, the misogyny, the homophobia. And the reality that those two words are the only two words that accurately describe what they're describing. For plenty of people, for plenty of critics and people in positions of legitimate music industry power, this shit was disqualifying. The editor-in-chief of Billboard magazine, Timothy White, took it upon himself to write a March 1999 editorial that accuses Eminem's label of making money by exploiting the world's misery. He describes the Slim Shady LP as a debut album whose main themes include drugging, raping, and murdering women. And this editorial climaxes with the line, indeed, to champion the objectification of human beings as mere exploitable sex props leads us back to the worst crime against humanity in history slavery end quote okay the public conversation about eminem has never been normal or civil or chill 
Not for one second. But the whole thing about Eminem's technical greatness, making him quite possibly spiritually intolerable, goes double for Eminem and Dr. Dre together. The way they egg each other on. Eminem needed Dr. Dre musically to become a pop star in 1999 in a much different and far more hostile environment for white rappers. Eminem needed Dr. Dre's cosign to become a credible rapper. Plenty of people can listen to Guilty Conscience and not think about any of that shit. And I don't begrudge those people, but nor do I begrudge the people who can't listen to it at all. Okay, that was no fun. Neither is this. Come on, hey, hey, we going to the beach. Grab a couple of toys and let dad strap you in the car seat. Oh, where's mama? She's taking a little nap in the trunk. Oh, that smell. Daddy must have run over a skunk. I still don't feel like talking about 97 Bonnie and Clyde, but yes, oh Christ, this is the song where Eminem fantasizes about killing his baby's mother and dumping her body in the lake with the baby coos provided by his actual daughter. Haley. Eminem told Rolling Stone, quote, I lied to Kim and told her I was taking Haley to Chuck E. Cheese that day, but I took her to the studio. When she found out I used our daughter to write a song about killing her, she fucking blew. We had just got back together for a couple of weeks. Then I played her the song and she bugged the fuck out. End quote. Reasonable. This is not a Dr. Dre enterprise, this song. Like much of the rest of the Slim Shady LP, it was co-produced by Eminem and the Bass Brothers. But once again, the ultra-catchy pop insidiousness makes this situation exponentially worse. Here's what we're going to do, actually. Here's how we'll handle 97 Bonnie and Clyde. We're tapping in Tori Amos. Wake up, sweepyhead. We're here. Before we play, we're going to take mama for a winter walk along the beer. Tori Amos covered this song in 2001 on her Strange Little Girls album. And this, too, is one of the least pleasant musical experiences I've ever had. But I'm kind of glad it exists. Tori explained it to Time Magazine like this. Eminem represents so much right now to a whole group of people. And he's a great poet. But when you kill your wife, you don't get to control whom she becomes friends with when she's dead. End quote. Also, she told Blender Magazine, I was attracted to the wife, who was faceless and nameless. Everyone's grooving to this tune, and nobody seemed to care about her. End quote. So Tori's version of this song is what Mommy hears from the trunk. I like to imagine Eminem listening to the Tori version and making the bug-eyed, holy shit, what the fuck is going on face that he's making in most of the movie 8 Mile. Eminem, to his credit, has never shied away from talking about any of these things or responding to any of the blistering criticism of his music, even if he's never backed down. In Rolling Stone in 1999, he says, My album isn't for younger kids to hear. It has an advisory sticker, and you must be 18 to get it. That doesn't mean younger kids won't get it, but I'm not responsible for every kid out there. I'm not a role model, and I don't claim to be. End quote. Nearly 20 years later, in an especially fascinating 2017 conversation with David Marchese in Vulture, 
M is asked directly if it's off base to criticize him as a misogynist. And M says, quote, I think it is because I've had my share of experiences with women where I felt a certain way and been mad enough to make songs about those feelings. All the bullshit around that. I'm not making an excuse, but the mentality that I've had since I was rapping at open mics was that you better have shit that's going to get a reaction or you will not be accepted when you're on the mic. Your first, second, third, and fourth line better grab attention or you're done. That attitude morphed into my music. A lot of times I'm saying stuff just to get that reaction. Maybe I took it too far sometimes. End quote. Yeah, maybe. My Name Is is not Eminem's best song in any sense, nor is it his worst song in any sense, but it sets the foundation for both. Prepare yourself, this song says, subliminally, but also not that subliminally. And we all prepared ourselves as best we could. And by the way, when you see my dad, yeah. ask him if he bought a porno mag and see my ass. That's the censored line. That's the line on MTV. That's the theoretically less offensive line. That's who we're dealing with here. This is how the 90s end, spiritually if not literally, and not a moment too soon. What I know is that My Name Is is one of the better and more devastatingly effective debut singles in rap history, and I am very glad that I was not an impressionable 12-year-old at the time, and I'm especially glad that I wasn't the parent of an impressionable 12-year-old at the time. My mom's outsized reaction to random heart songs and OPP, I understand that a little better now. But she had no idea what was coming, pop star-wise. But then again, nobody did. Our guest today, and this is weird, it's Justin Sales, Ringer Deputy Music Lead, Editor, My Editor, Day One Editor and Producer of this podcast, and host of the Rad New Ringer podcast, The Wedding Scammer. Justin, thank you for being here the whole time, including right now. Hello. Rob, I've been waiting for this moment for <laughs> two years. Um, I Yes. I'm curious, what do you think the listeners of this show think of me? Because at one point, <laughs> you tweeted out about the editing process and how I asked you to split up a couple couple of long sentences. And then, um, and then um, I don't know what the opposite of a stan is, but I developed a few of those. <laughs> you were admonished for not letting me cook. Do I, uh, do I recall that correctly? Yes. And Rob... I don't know. Do, 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 I, do I let you cook or do I not let you cook? I would like to say on the record that you absolutely let me cook. I laid 8,000 words on Eminem on you. And I, it was, I think, 7 p.m. your time last night. And you processed them at an inhuman rate with an inhuman level of skill. You, you let me cook. And I am very grateful to you for that. And I will defend you against all random Twitter users who allege otherwise. It was a long sentence. It was a good I it was it was a good idea to split up that sentence. I think that's very important to say. I'm not infallible, Justin. Well, my biggest <laughs> question for you right now is considering that you filed 8,000 words about Eminem to me, 
and you were working on it until the very last moment. How's your mental health right now, Rob? How's your mental state? <laughs> How are you feeling? I don't feel that good, to be honest with you. I am a little foggy. I don't know. You, I think you're in better spirits than I am. I think you, I think you deal with Eminem better than I do. In I really do. We can, I, yeah. we can discuss why that might be. But yeah, it's a lot to deal with. You know, to like write about Eminem at great length and then to go like take my daughter to the park. This is a very unnatural <laughs> feeling. Yeah. Um, and this, of course, is happening while the Drake album is out, which features his son very prominently. There's just a lot, a lot of. Kids I don't involved. want to deal. I, I, I'm okay. going to. I don't have to write about that record, and so I'm going to listen to that record when I'm good and ready. And if that's you know on Christmas Day of next year, then that's what's going to happen. Uh, Justin, in addition to your other activities, which include owning a rad dog named Trina and running mm -hmm. marathons for spite, you are also a veteran <laughs> rapper and producer of rap music. Uh, tell me about your path musically, just to lay a foundation here. Rob, that is the most beautiful and the most bizarre introduction I'll ever receive. If I'm ever um, elected into Cooperstown, I want you presenting me. I'll be there. Yeah, I, um, in a past life, was a white rapper. And that started from the time I was young. Um, that started mm. from before I was aware of Eminem's existence. I was like, uh, mm. probably like 13, 14. I was like 14 when Eminem, um, my name is, came out. I was vaguely aware of him from the Slim Shady EP, but um, it predates all that. And I uh, put out a couple records that you probably don't have to go that far down a Google rabbit hole to find. I'm not embarrassed <laughs> of them. It was mostly as a producer at that point. I had um, realized, I realized it's easier to kind of like, you know, distance yourself from it down the road if you're just making the beats. But I have enjoyed rap music from a young age and I have, <laughs> I have served, I've done various things from rapping to producing to DJing and um, all of them at vary, various degrees of seriousness over the years. We're off to a great start here, I have to we say. We are. I think it's going great. I think this is excellent, long-honed rapport right here. What happens to rap music and what happens to white rappers in particular when Eminem happens? How does he alter the landscape? You know, I was thinking about this a lot, and I think about this a lot in relation to my experience right away. Uh, when I was like 14, 15, I used to go to a weekly open mic um, at a place called the Providence Black Repertory Company. And I was one of the few white kids there. I was very young. And, um, you know, part of this could have been that I was too young to really process everything around me, but I felt very welcome. And then when Eminem dropped, there was a period where it felt like, oh, this now feels like it feels like I'm an unwelcome guest in this house. And I'm like, I, I, I've come to appreciate that in hindsight, right? To like have that experience early on because you could see a world where like a lot of white kids who came into rap at some point after that probably weren't fully appreciative of the fact that they were white kids in the partaking in this, right? Because what you have that immediately happens after that, in my experience was within six months, you had a lot of other white kids at this weekly open mic. And I think that just happens in general after that. There are just a bunch of white rappers everywhere. And they are white rappers that are uh, very focused on 
there was it, we we'll, we'll talk about his technical abilities down the road, but there was it kind of it kind of changed the scope of that things. What I will say about Eminem, and I was thinking about this, and I just had this thought before we jumped on. I think that Eminem was the first white rapper that made other white kids want to be rappers. Um, I think about like the Beastie Boys. You know, you you're a few years older than me. You know, not not not. Many, but you were like more present when like Paul's Boutique Thank was coming you. out. I think I was like six or seven when Paul's Boutique right. was coming out. By the time I was fully aware of the Beastie Boys, they were kind of more for like skaters and, and you know, especially by the time. Yeah, like, they were hello. rock stars. Yeah. And, you know, Vanilla Ice was yeah. a joke. Uh, third Base, House <laughs> of Pain, they were just there. Milk Bones, people like that were just big nothings. You had... Underground, you had underground rappers starting in like the mid '90s. You had your company flows with LP and whatnot, right? But in terms of someone who could rap credibly, like you know, who who the skills were apparent and felt like a legitimate—I don't know—I don't, I don't want to use the word beacon, but like just this this thing that white kids could aspire to. Which it, yeah, phrase, phrasing sounds awful, but you know, it's. Uh, <laughs> Eminem might have been the first one who made these kids in mass feel like they could pick up a mic. Do you think that they were drawn to the technical ability or, you know, the the nastiness? I think it's a little of both. It's it's interesting to hear you talk about um you know, the idea of a 12-year-old latching on to this music. Um and that you were thankful that you weren't 12 uh when this came out. It's um I do think there's a certain like South Park quality to those early records that just <laughs> that just kids That's, between yeah uh -huh. right Cart Cartman yeah, yeah Cartman is a rapper yeah he, he I mean he, his name pops up a few times in Eminem songs at some point but you know the late '90s were a time where that that like juvenile just like nasty humor was just kind of in the air um, I often think that some of the Eminem stuff was too silly to be offensive and then some of it was too offensive to be silly you know it kind of right. works both ways but um I think people were probably more drawn to the personality like definitely the personality first and then the technical ability second so when open mic nights are lousy with Eminem clones, like when the white rapper deluge happens, like what's the hardest thing to replicate about what he does? Like the technical ability or the charisma part? Like what's harder to replicate? It's the charisma, right? Like anybody can study a craft, but like it's different between like learning to play the notes and play them and, and play them in a certain way, right? Like play them with a certain style, right? Like Jimi Hendrix right, is not right. Jimi Hendrix because he can play those notes like that. Jimi Hendrix is Jimi Hendrix because he can play like that with like this, cer this certain style, the certain attitude, right? And it's, it's this, it, it's absolutely 100% harder to be that charismatic like world historically charismatic no matter what we think about the music or him as a personality he had a charisma i was listening to a lot of the early songs like a lot of the you know to reference stan all the all the the shit he did with raucous you know that shit was fat um and he, the, like <laughs> yeah. the way he just even as an underground rapper just jumps out on these songs like it's part of that is the voice part of that is because of the technical ability but it's almost impossible to replicate that. Now, the technical ability, 
he's in the probably, you know, top two, three percent of people that's ever rapped in in that regard, right? You know, I think on on some days you could probably even put, put him a little bit higher just from pure technical ability. But you know, you can you can study to get there. You can never study to be to have that kind of charisma. Is this related to your silly little guy theorem? Is it time to talk about this theorem? I'm very excited for this. Okay. Yes. My take is that Eminem is only enjoyable when he's being a silly little guy and that the worst thing that ever happened to him was the way I am. And when he got like this real hard, bitter edge to him after he became famous. And it was basically, I enjoy the nasally Eminem more than I enjoy the Eminem yelling at me. And I enjoy the Eminem who's kind of like loose and playing around with the beat, right? The guy who's like, the guy who's looking for the craziest word to rhyme instead of the guy who is looking for the perfect rhyme scheme. Like the guy, like the, basically what I'm saying is, Rap God Eminem is the worst possible version of Eminem. Um, <laughs> it's tough. Like, it's a lot it's, to absorb, Rap God I, Eminem. Like, yeah. I, I put on a song like Rap God, and I'm like, this guy is, I, I, I cannot even fathom this talent, and I am exhausted by it. I have no desire to hear it. <laughs> but then I hear, you know, right. then I, I hear a song like As the World Turns off of the Slim Shady LP, and it is like the most like 12-year-old humor. He's, he talks about a a woman literally biting off his leg like a like an egg roll, you know, swallows his leg whole like an egg roll, and it's yes. like this is so stupid. There are sound effects, yeah, it's yeah, it's so <laughs> stupid, it's so silly, but this is so fun. Like this is so loose, and like I think that heaviness really starts to creep in while he's halfway through making that Marshall Mathers LP and like The Way I Am is one of the last songs he makes on that record. And it kind of becomes this prism for the rest of his career where it's just rhyme scheme, rhyme scheme, rhyme scheme. And it's just great, great. Can we just have fun? Does that in turn make the Slim Shady LP his most fun record? If fun is a way that you think about this person in general. Rob, do you think that Eminem has a good album? I think I think I would agree with him in saying that Marshall Mathers is the closest. I would put that there. And I would say Slim Shady, if it strikes you right, I think Hangs Together is a full album. I like the way that a song like Rock Bottom, I like the way that it's he's not famous yet. There's a realization that he's about to get famous. And as you say, like there's a playfulness, even if it's ugly, even if it's clunky. Like there is a relative lightness to Slim Shady that you're never going to get again. And that's very appealing to me and certainly more appealing than Rap God, et cetera. So I, I think if you, I think the first two records come the closest and I do think that they get there. I really enjoy a lot of Eminem raps. I enjoy single songs. Um, I I can put on the Slim Shady and I can enjoy almost all of it from a rapping perspective. I think some of the production on that album just really doesn't hold up like come on everybody and my fault <laughs> like the production on those songs are okay like yeah, they, yeah. They, my fault they, is i can't deal with my fault yeah okay you know what's funny being in you know being in high school in 1998 um fucking kids loved blasting my fault out of their accurate or whatever oh, no. they were driving it was it was, it was bad. <laughs> 
It was bad. That's grim. Yeah. Um, this is why I don't go near Rhode Island. Yeah. <laughs> For people who don't know where I'm from, they're not even going to get that reference. Um, I was I was actually discussing this with our um, with our boss Sean Fantasy the other day, um, who you know worked for worked for many rap magazines and actually covered Eminem at one point. Um, he prefers Slim Shady LP to Mar- to the Marshall Mathers LP. I think I'd rather put on the Slim Shady okay. LP, but I think the Marshall Mathers LP is probably the closest he has to like a you know capital G great album. Um, yeah, I think that. But Slim Shady LP, it's silly, it's fun. It has Role Model, which I think is probably the best song of his that's like available widely on streaming. So, okay. That's a strong statement. All right. Uh, I believe you have another theorem that his career changed entirely after both Renegade, uh, his collaboration with Jay-Z and then Ether, Nas's famed Jay-Z diss track in which he said, Eminem murdered you on your own shit. Like, tell me about this theorem. What happens to Eminem as a result of that? Well, Let's let's actually. Th- I think this dovetails with another question you had, and I think we can kind of discuss them hand in hand. You were discussing how important you wanted to talk about how important the Dre cosign was, and the reality was it, it was very important, especially in the days before the internet. We can talk about after like how that's changed, um, but the the Dre cosign was obviously very important at a time where. White rappers were still living in a post Eminem world. I mean, sorry, in a post Vanilla Ice world, right? <laughs> Where, yeah, yeah, you know, even if you had like, even if the rapper had some abilities and like they weren't trying to do a Vanilla Ice thing, there was always just kind of that thing in the back, in back, you know, it's just this thing that hung over them. And the Dr. Dre cosign was very important, but I don't think that. Eminem was largely considered like one of the greats in the larger hip hop community until that one two punch of Renegade and Ether. Because now he appears on Renegade in 2001 on Jay Z's The Blueprint, an album that I think was engineered to be the greatest rap album ever. I'm not saying it is, but I'm saying that Jay Z went into this thinking, I'm going to make. My five, my five mic. This is my prestige album. This is the album I will be remembered by. Right? He has one feature. He has one feature on it, and it's Eminem. And do you think Eminem rap better than him on that? Yes. Okay. I go back and forth all the time. I was actually um, this morning. I was ranking the four verses on it, and I don't think the audience needs to hear That's me. That's exciting. That. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was great content. <laughs> great for content. Um, <laughs> but. This morning, I felt like he did as well, right? So one, he gets that boost from that. And it's this thing that everyone's thinking, but nobody's really saying. And then in probably the most famous rap battle ever, Nas just goes, and Eminem murdered you on your own shit to Jay. And it got such a reaction because it was true. And I think it became this moment that was like, it really kind of added this extra stamp of credibility. And crucially, the song also turns stan into a noun ether also turns stan into a noun right it wasn't like uh-huh. it right, wasn't like right. stan dropped and then everyone was like oh that guy you're, you're a stan for that guy it was when when Nas said it it was like 
wait, what the fuck did he just say? Like, he just, oh my God. And that it's just, those two songs back to back, I think actually cemented Eminem as one of the greats. Changed his legacy. Do you think, okay, so his legacy, the public perception. Prior to that, do you think Eminem considered himself one of the greats? And do you think that part of his problem going forward is that he now needs to live up to this public perception of him as one of the greats? Or is he already thinking that? Or is that just the way any rapper thinks that they're one of the greats? Or did he actually believe it by then? I don't know. Like, I can't put myself in his head to that degree. I think, you know, Eminem is a student of rap, right? Like, even... Right. I, I was listening to some some deep cuts this morning. I tried to go very deep, right? In the, over, the, over the course of this past week. And... You know, in 2013, he put a song on Call of Duty that was a cover of a Black Moon song, right? On the on the Call of Duty soundtrack. And it's like, this was a guy who just studies, um, studies the history of rap, the sport of rap, you know? And Till I Collapse, right. one of his- Right. And, and is one of his biggest songs. He lists off his te- top 10 rappers and, you know, he lists Redman and he puts Redman <laughs> ahead of himself on that list. And yeah. I don't I don't know where Eminem, if you asked him right now in 2023, where he would put himself on that list. I do think he obviously thinks he's a great rapper. Like, yeah. I think that I think that Eminem thinks he was put on this earth to rap and pr- pretty reasonable argument that he was. But <laughs> um, I don't I don't know if that to me it's always been more the fame affected him this right this this chip on his shoulder because of you know he i think another thing that we don't really discuss in terms of Eminem he didn't get famous until he was a little bit older right, right? mid 20s was yeah mid to late, late 20s 20, late 20s yeah. Eminem's 50 now right so that would mean <laughs> 20, 25 years ago so okay. he, this was like 26, 27, 28 when he was blowing up. And that's a big difference. You know, right. You could compare that to a Nas. Illmatic came out when he was like 19, 20, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Jay-Z was also a little bit older, but Jay-Z always had like this wizened thing to him, you know? Jay-Z right. had been around the industry for a little bit. Eminem just always kind of had this chip on his shoulder. And I think it kind of calcified as he got more famous and a little like weirder as a person as he became a celebrity and right. i i think that was more of the change than anything that had to do with like how he viewed himself as a rapper okay. now i do think that at a certain point he became so obsessed with the craft of rapping that the music became mm-hmm. boring but that's the whole silly little guy versus rap god thing <laughs> i think he would agree with that like in that vulture in the david marchese interview he says something like you know i'll make a song i'll listen to it in the car and i'll realize that i'm not actually saying anything like this song isn't about anything i'm just rapping for no reason you know, <laughs> lot, lots of great rap music has been about nothing. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but sometimes Eminem's music insists upon itself. <laughs> yes. Yes. To, to quote another cartoon that I'm sure Eminem fans sure. yes. enjoy. <laughs> uh, what do you make of Detroit producing Eminem, the Insane Clown Posse, and Kid Rock basically at the same time? What is the deal there? In your professional opinion, I've you know I knew you wanted to ask this, and I've been struggling with this because I'm not I'm not from Detroit. You know my my initial reaction is you know 
these are specifically all white rappers or rap adjacent people. Um, um, Isham was kind of doing Isham or Isham. I always forget how to pronounce it. He was doing like a similar horrorcore style as like you know ICP Kid Rock. Obviously, wasn't like that. You know, the gut is the my gut reaction to that is it probably says something about the like the blue collar nature when you get when uh, of the city like i i don't want to like speculate on too much of the socioeconomic stuff of detroit but it does feel like it makes sense based on the ideas you have of detroit and like this you know right as the as the auto industry falls out and what have you i don't know i don't want to go too far down that road i do think it's interesting no, but i know what you're saying yeah and but I, I do think it's interesting a couple things on this though um insane clown posse I'm I've, I'm not intimately familiar with their music. I have to be honest, but topically, they're not really that far off from early Eminem. The difference is early M, early Eminem is doing this with like a lot more style, a lot more technical ability. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, Kid Rock is Kid Rock, um, <laughs> but it's also interesting to me that this is he happening while is. there are there are. I don't. I don't really have much to add to the Kid Rock is Kid Rock, you know. That's fine. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, but God this is bless. also, you know, I, I also think about this in relation to though. Um, Slum Village is coming up around this time. Jay Dilla, T uh, three, those guys. But um, I've also been trying to figure out a lot how much Royce the Five Nine influenced Eminem versus how much Eminem influenced Royce the five nine. Right? Like I do think that there was a certain there was a certain like creative alchemy those two had together that they fed off of each other. Yeah. But it's a good song on the Slim Shady LP, you know, like it's their Do you like scary movies? I'm not asking that like <laughs> like like scream. I'm asking like do you like the song scary movies? That's all right. I like uh, I, the song more than I like actual scary movies. Let's, let's I, well, I know I know that about you. Does, yeah, does the, right. That's yeah. Does the audience know how much you don't like actual scary movies? <laughs> I think that they can infer it just from the sound of my voice. Yeah. Probably, I prefer the song "Scary Movies" to the song "Come On Everybody." For example, there you go. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Put it that way. I think that you saying that Eminem views hip-hop as a sport views rapping as a sport is i that's a very useful prism through me to view eminem right that he sees it as as a sport as a competition and he came out of battle rapping you know the exhaustion that sets in listening to him you know from you know the marshall mathers lp forward like that's based on an aerobic quality you know, a combative, you know, sport-like mentality that he has about rap music. He's such a rap nerd. I've always wondered why late period Eminem just never did the thing where he just got some DJ Premier beats and some Pete Rock beats. And like the Alchemist is his tour DJ. Like why just imagine, like imagine him just over an album worth of Alchemist beats. Like I've just never understood why Freddie Gibbs. Right, right. Yeah. Why, why Mm. wouldn't he do something like that instead of, you know, uh, he rolls out these albums where it's got like a juice world song and like this, this, his self-produced songs and like, all like take Keith beats. And he's just trying to kind of keep up with the times a little bit in in terms of production, if not rapping, Um, because he's still, 
I, I can't remember when the last time he put out an album was, but he's seemed to be still preoccupied with mumble rappers long after everyone was like, right, no, yes. that's, that's not actually a thing, you know? Um, but I just never understood why this guy who obviously just is a student of rap, just loves rapping so much, just never went and made his like legit album. Like do an album with DJ Premier, do an album with The Alchemist, do an, do an album with it where you get guys contributing to all of, all of those guys contributing. Never understood. Right, it. right. Do you want a black album type record or do you want like a 444 type record? What is Eminem's 444 like? <laughs> Just withdrawn. What? I actually don't want, I don't want to hear that. I regret saying that out loud. That's, yeah, never mind. Yeah. Never I just, mind. I just, I just want him. You, I just want him rapping and just feeling loose. You know, actually, there is one later period Eminem album that um, my dear friend Paul Thompson, friend of the show, um, mm-hmm. he has convinced me is actually a legitimately good Eminem album. And like, this is the part where I might burn whatever credibility I had left after um, my introduction with where I had to explain how, how much rap music I've produced. But um, mm-hmm. Relapse <laughs> is, the, mm. I think, 2008-2009 Eminem album. Completely critically derided. Yep. Actually, 2009. A- actually deserves a critical reevaluation. It's this weird album where he's doing this okay. weird, this weird indiscernible ac- accent that's like kind of half Irish, half Arabic. This is one of the accent deals, right? Yep. Right. But it's <laughs> half Irish, and and it is like his <laughs> his horrorcore album. Um, it is definitely. The, it, which sounds funny discussing it in the context of some of his earlier music, but like this is definitely his most like fictionalized horror movie type album. But it's also the album that Dre handled most right. of the production on. Not a bad album. Mm-hmm. I, I gotta be honest. I mean, I've been completely relapse pilled over the past few years by Paul Thompson. I just had to get that take out it's there. 76 minutes long. It's That's, a great take, but this is this is also one of his longest records. He you even know, before you get to the deluxe editions, there's a lot of deluxe. I there's like look, a lot of penalty content on this I, record. I can give you a, a great eight song EP. That there we go. That's day. what that's what I want. That's yes. that's what the world wants. Um, to sum up, Justin, I have heard <laughs> several episodes. <laughs> In conclusion, yeah. Great transition, Rob. Um, I have heard I have heard several episodes in advance, and I am extremely excited for your new podcast, The Wedding Scammer. What should we know about this show, and what should we not know going into this show? This is this was a, a great transition, as your editor <laughs> absolutely zero <laughs> zero notes on that front. Wow, I'm I'm a professional. <laughs> they're they're not going to hate me for editing you. They're going to hate me for being like, why did he strong arm you into making him ask that question? And oh, no, I, I just, didn't because because you're a fan of the wedding scammer, I guess. I am. I absolutely am. So it's a crazy story, and I you know I'll give the ninety second version the best I can. But it's just when I first moved out to L A. in 2015, um, I got lightly scammed by a guy. I took a job at a company that turned out not to be real. And this was this very strange, charismatic guy. And he hired me at a media company. He hired me and about 50 other people. And then one day after a strange couple weeks, shut the company down, never paid anyone. 
And it was this weird story that always stuck with me, right? I learned little things about the guy. I learned that this strange, charismatic guy who I wasn't really sure was this, you know, he, he told us he was rich, that he family made all this money in coal, all these weird things. I wasn't sure he was who he really said he was. And then a couple years later, I learned, oh, this guy is going around using aliases. And it's like, holy shit, I got an, I got an honest to God con man on my hands, right? Like this is a guy who's using aliases. He's doing all this weird shit. Stuff popped up in the San Francisco Chronicle about him, right? Mm -hmm. Like just mm -hmm. all these weird things. Moving around. Yeah. Moving around, changing names. A lot of people saying he owes them money. News outlets are now covering this guy. And I'm like, this is crazy. I got, I got an in to this story because I worked for this guy for three weeks and never got paid. So I started doing some research. I find, I find yeah. that one of the things he did would, was um, ruin people's weddings and keep the money. And then he did a whole bunch of other things. And I learned a lot of things about this guy's past, which you haven't heard yet because you're only on episode three. And I've I only three his, episodes in, less than halfway. Yep. I learned his, uh, learn his real name. I learned where he is at this exact moment. And the one Ooh. thing I feel comfortable spoiling in terms of actual episodes because it's the cold open of episode one is in january 2023 i went to where he is right now taped a wire on my chest and <laughs> tried to get him talking on mic and whether he actually does or not is something i will i will hold off on on discussing that is, that comes up later in the series but i taped an honest to god wire on my chest and i am the deputy music lead at the ringer i have people who report Amazing. to me I, I have to write their you do i am one of them yes yes their annual reviews i have to be like here's yes, room for improvement here's the way you can split up sentences the by yes. the way your boss was a former white rapper who went to a place with a wire on his chest and confronted a con man so and i am so proud and that is available now on the ringer podcast network the wedding scammer wow it's just in sales let him cook. Thank you, Justin, for everything. Thank you, Rob. Thanks so much to our special guest this week, Justin Sales. A lot of promise in that guy. Uh, thanks, as always, to our producers, Justin Sales and Jonathan Kerma. And thanks very much to you for listening. And now, without further ado, why don't you go listen to my name is by Eminem. We'll see you next week.